Welcome to the Eco Interviews, where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. I don't know about you, but the enormity of the problem can be overwhelming. What can one person do? But as I read and explored different facets of the problem, time and time again, I came across people who are making a positive change. From farmers to parents, business owners to academics, we are not a single isolated person. All of our efforts together add up to something amazing. So I want to share these stories as a chance to educate myself and my listeners and create a global community of people who value nature and humans as part of it. What can you do to help? Start by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or directly on the website at ecointerviews.com. That is www.eco-interviews.com. Leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us reach more people. Share the podcast with your friends. Join us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you're so inclined, we have a Patreon account set up at patreon.com slash ecointerviews. I hope you find these conversations as interesting as I do. If you have any suggestions for topics or speakers, please reach out to us on social media. Thanks again for your support. We're all in this together, so let's figure it out together. In this episode, we're speaking to Ollie Morice about the state of the climate in Australia and blue carbon. Okay, welcome, Ollie. We're with Ollie Morice with for he's with us for the eco interviews he's comment he's uh speaking to us from melbourne australia so thanks for being with us ollie thanks fiona um it's great to be with you guys great so ollie has a research experience looking at blue carbon which is mangroves and seagrasses in the pacific island region as a means to addressing climate change mitigation adaptation biodiversity conservation and sustainable development and Ollie is currently working as a research officer at RMIT University with IPP, excuse me, IPCC lead author on climate change adaptation, Dr. Lauren Rickards, in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies. So I'm very excited, Ollie, to um, speak to you and hear from you in regards to um, Australia, uh, the sort of outlook there, and then also blue carbon. But to get started, can you tell us a little bit about the situation in Australia as it stands environmentally in terms of pollution emissions and um, where Australia is going in the next few years as we see it today? Yeah, so as, as we're speaking today, um, both Victoria and New South Wales, um, which are the two states where Australia's biggest cities and largest population is centred, Melbourne and Sydney, um, are basically all covered in, in bushfire smoke and there's been a massive bushfire crisis, as many of you will and you will have heard of, um, around the world. Um, and it's unprecedented, um, the size, the magnitude, um, the length of time that these fires have been burning. Um, we've had... I, I've lived in... Um, during terrible bushfires in the past, um, one of the worst fires in Victoria was ten years ago, um, in, or two thousand and nine, Black Saturday, um, and that. But that only lasted, you know, days and weeks. If mm-hmm. so, it, this has been going on around Sydney um, for like three or four months now, and um, it's still kind of a, like probably a few more months of the fire season to go. So. We're really in unprecedented times and um, I've been kind of working in climate change for a while um, and been talking about these kinds of impacts, Um, like this is what will happen if we warm, you know, above one degree 
and that's exactly what we're seeing now. So Australia's been, um, I guess, um, people like David Attenborough have, have said this, that Australia is one of the most sort of climate, um, sort of high-risk climate um, countries in the world um, and vulnerable to climate change because we're a big continent but we're a very already a very dry and arid continent um, with low rainfall um, and yeah there's a, just all the different kinds of climate hazards and um, disasters uh, are possible here from bushfires um, cyclones in the sort of top the north of the country floods um, and they're all getting worse um, and w- which is w- what we're seeing right now playing out like yesterday we had unprecedented sort of summer rainfall we had hailstones like the size of baseballs mm. falling like and unfortunately it wasn't enough to it hasn't been enough to put out fires so we've got that happening at the same time as these bushfires so it's it's pretty dire and um yeah things that we've been um kind of talking about for a while in in the climate and environment um sort of sector um but basically where australia stands is we're really obviously now as we're seeing, really vulnerable. Um, but unfortunately, the federal government um, has um, basically blocked any real action. So back in 2009, around the time of the, this last sort of major bushfire crisis, um, there was a Labor sort of pr- more progressive government had just come in um, and they basically put a, a lot of great policies through the first um uh, carbon sort of tax, um, which it was kind of, it's kind of not a tax, but um, that sort of came in. It was the first in the world. Um, it was really successful. It started dropping emissions. There was all these other policies across reducing pollution in the mining um, and sort of um, sort of high emission sectors as well, um, and in agriculture and, and a, sort of a range of really good policies across all sectors. Um, and our emission, Australia's emissions had started to decrease, um, but um, you may have heard a, a, the opposition leader, so this kind of conservative um, opposition led by Tony Abbott, who is this climate change denier, um, just yeah, abysmal, abysmal sort of politician, um, basically. And, and it was a, we had our first pri- uh, female prime minister um, come in as well a few years after that, um, also progressive. And basically Tony Abbott um, sort of attacked her. Um, yeah, sort of it was it was pretty like yeah, embarrassing. And and also he basically attacked all of the climate change policies and he ended up winning in 2014 or 13. Um, and basically yeah, took everything down um, and tried to um, sort of dismantle to all of these climate change authority um, agencies that had been set up by the previous government. And he was pretty successful at doing a lot of that. And since then, basically, Australia's emissions have gone up um, and they're continuing to go up now. Last year, uh, in the last um, year, so up until the end of 2019, emissions in the electricity se- sector had slightly started to um, go down but that was only that's only because we've had a really large uptake of solar and renewables and because Australia is really sunny country um, and people it makes sense to have solar panels on your roof so we've got one of the highest um, sort of household uptakes of solar in the world which is, it's kind of this ironic thing where you know we're, we're really vulnerable where our 
sort of individually like um, we're, we're doing some really great things but then the government's sort of blocking the really systemic sort of structural changes that we need. Um, and it's basically because the, the gov- that conservative government has a sort of a small block of really conservative um, polit- like backbencher parliamentarians and um, ministers um, and they have, they're all climate change deniers um, and they've got ties to the fossil fuel industry and stuff and they've continued to sort of, yeah, um, spew this sort of anti-climate um, rhetoric and a sort of agenda that's been incredibly damaging and that's so that's why we're sort of here now where after 10 years we've had I think six or seven prime ministers you might have heard in the news over the last few years that we keep switching prime ministers from both parties so it's been an absolute mess it's it's kind of it's it's probably worse than Brexit because it's been going on for so long um, and we still don't have a climate change policy um, and now it, it's strange, like there's been a lot of work done by a lot of activists and community groups to, um, yeah, to change, to yeah, put pressure on the government and, and that has started to change public perception um, and particularly these bushfires now, it's like I think the, the polls sort of show that, um, yeah, it's the highest sort of uh, level of the population now want the government to take significant action on climate change. Um, but even now, the, the government, while they've, they've changed their kind of rhetoric around now they say they believe in climate change and they um, know that it's happening but and, and that Australia should be doing its part under the Paris Agreement and such, um, now they're kind of using this. What my boss kind of says is like um, denial of denial. So they're in denial. So now that what they're saying is, we never said that climate change wasn't real. We've always believed in the science, but what they, they their argument now is that Australia shouldn't should, should just t- do its part because we are only one point three of glo- percent of global emissions. So um, we it, yeah we shouldn't take a leadership role or be sort of ambitious with our emission reductions. And um, even now, a lot of there's been a lot of sort of experts come out and saying that Australia, we won't even meet our targets now which are they're less than the us's they're like 26 percent below 2005 levels um and yeah that like i mean as as i'm sure you and your listeners would know that those kinds of levels are they're sort of the lower end in the paris agreement like and not ambitious at all and our the sort of um, more progressive party, although they've still got ties to um, the coal industry as well, are kind of saying they want to aim for forty five percent by uh, reduction by twenty thirty, which is much better. But again, it's no way near enough. And um, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Um, this these bushfires are definitely changing. I I think how that um, the population is seeing it, and they're really kind of. I think it seems like putting the pieces together that, you know, this is actually climate change. Like, um, yes, Australia has always had fires and floods and these things, but we've never had fires like this. And the fire season is extending basically, you know, like more than half the year now across the country. So or there's basically fires in Australia all year round now. Um, And... And kind of seeing that the the resourcing challenges with what sort of with 
those kinds of conditions bring like you know where our firefighters have having to fight in victoria and then when that finishes they'll have to go to queensland or somewhere else and um and all of the sort of government agencies um having to spread their resources more thinly i think is starting to come across and um so hopefully that means that we will get some better sort of policy in place but again the government and particularly our prime minister is um yeah i i wouldn't hold my breath with them still in power so that's kind of where we're at at the moment yeah it's such it's such a shame and thanks for bringing some insight into that um i feel like the us might be paralleling australia right now with our current administration, the Trump administration, um, while there's all this crazy stuff happening in the forefront, what's going on behind the scenes is taking away key parts of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, dismantling the EPA, uh, you know, opening our national parks to fracking and drilling. And um, because we have, <laughs> you know, a reality TV person as our president, he has so much other distractions going on in front of us, impeachment, um, you know, Iran, all that, that this other stuff yeah. is being dismantled and it's certainly insidious. And am I correct in um, reading or seeing that Australia is one of the top exporters of coal? So that's yeah. part of your flip is from reducing emissions to now being a great exporter of coal. And then there's also the um, approval of the Adani. Is that correct? The Adani yeah. um, mine. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah. So yeah, that, that the, the exports thing I think is, yeah, brings up some really interesting questions around, um, you know, uh, double counting of emissions reductions or, which I think we'll talk about later around blue carbon as well, but there's kind of an interesting analogy with, with um, pollution and also sequestration as well. But, um, yeah, basically Australia is the number one exporter of coal um, and um, both site, both of our major political parties, are, as I said earlier, have ties to the coal industry. It's been a massive part of our economy, I guess, for a long time and, um, on the conservative side, um, you know, there's ties to fossil fuel companies and then on the, the sort of more progressive side, there's ties to the, the trade unions who are fundamental, I guess, or have been to, to sort of labour labouring in mines, mines and stuff. Um, so both sides of uh, continuing to support coal exports, even though the Labor Party is kind of saying, you know, we need a much um, more comprehensive climate policy and we need to reduce emissions and... Um, and be much more ambitious and be a leader and, and invest more in renewables and stuff, which is all good good things, but they continue to say, you know, we're going to continue with coal exports. Um, and it's just, again, this thing where it's like, you know, we've got one atmosphere and borders, like emissions don't stop at the border. And, I mean, just an example with the bushfires, like where um, I think Australia in the future definitely could be legally... Um, culpable under I don't know some sort of international um, environmental criminal sort of um, court if if that ever exists but um, I've got a friend who works in New Zealand in the national parks there and um, you know New Zealand's it's pretty far away like it's a three three hour flight from Melbourne um, and the bushfire smoke has basically covered New, the South Island of New Zealand and and he sent me videos of him out in in Milford Sound, a famous sort of national park, uh, working on the trails, and they just got hit by this thick smoke um, 
and he couldn't they couldn't breathe and it's just like you know that's the like yeah if we sell our coal to india or wherever or korea south korea or wherever we do and then they burn the coal like it doesn't matter it's still going in the atmosphere and we should be also we're also responsible for that so i think it's a yeah it's a crazy position that our both our sides of politics sort of hold and um at at cop uh 25 in in madrid in december Australia, I don't know if you've heard of that fossil of the day. They had the NGOs sort of run this um, little competition sort of prize for who's the sort of la- biggest laggard on climate. Um, and Australia won it like three times um, during the, three, the, the two weeks and Australia continues to be like they rank, I think, most of the OECD and sort of other major polluting con- countries on a range of different um, responses to climate change um, and emission reductions. Um, and Australia was like 57th or 58th out of 60 and only really worse to Saudi Arabia and maybe Iran or something or one of the other sort of big oil producers. So, I mean, yeah, like come on, like that. we've got to do better than that and, and we yeah. can as well. Like, um, and I mean, yeah, so that's kind of with the export stuff. Um, Adani is just yeah, has been this ongoing debacle. This um, Indian billionaire Guatama Adani, um, his the Adani sort of company has a range of um, or a long history of of a poor environmental track record in India and around the world as well. Like significant pollution and um, sort of uh, where they were supposed to do environmental cleanup and they haven't, and legal stuff as well. Um, and somehow um, our government, um, I guess I guess a while ago they got um, this mining uh, lease or exploration lease and I, it takes a long time to, to get to the mining stage in Australia because there's a lot of different uh, regulations around biodiversity and water and all these things. So it, it does take a long time um, and uh, community groups and climate activists have been fighting this mine ever since it really got approvals and it's been going on for years now. Um, and the government's just kept giving it, like passing its, like giving the green light. And just just one example of like how, I, I don't know how it passes these acts, like there's a Biodiversity Act and there's two threatened species who live in this air this basin the galilee basin it's in north queen far north queensland so right near the top of australia um and basically the, the mine development would remove all of this vegetation this ecosystem where these two uh, ones called the black throated finch it's a small little bird and it only lives in this area that's the only uh, habitat that it has left and the mine proposal, so how they get around it in to, to meet the regulation is that they, they say they're going to clear this land to build a mine, but they're going to go and plant the same kind of vegetation ecosystem somewhere else, like close by. Um, and so then somehow this bird species will survive there. But, like, I'm assuming, like, and, and there's a lot of sort of questions around it, like they're going to translocate this bird to the new habitat, but... The new habitat's going to take more than ten years to grow. Like, where is this bird going to go in ten years? Like, it's it's ludicrous. And somehow that passes state and federal sort of reg- environmental regulations and biodiversity protection acts. 
it's it's I, I have no idea how that works um, and I work in the in the area and have been looking at this mine for years so it's yeah. just shocking and the both the state government um, which is a labor sort of more progressive government um, have done all their approvals and the federal government the conservative government has done all their approvals and another thing is that the the mine ba- the company will basically be able to take as much water as they want Normally, there's a limitation on the amount of liters they're allowed to take from groundwater, mm-hmm. um, but the, the government, the state government's basically said or given them sort of a an unlimited supply of groundwater, and it's in this um, big aquifer um, that um, is already pretty depleted, and a lot of farm uh, agriculture in the area depends on groundwater, and they've gone through long-term drought in the last six years in Queensland and New South Wales. And basically the government's saying that this company can come in and build a mine and just take all the water. And, it, yeah, it's it's created these interesting tensions because normally the agriculture and sort of farming sector is quite um, is supported by the coalition, which is the, the Conservative Party because it's made up by the Liberal Party, not small-hell Liberal, um, and uh, the Nationals, which is kind of a country sort of... Um, conservative party and usually the country party or nationals will support farmers but now farmers are you know standing up against this mine because it's going to destroy their livelihoods and still this coalition government is supporting fossil fuels over food like it's a yeah and so yeah at where the adani mine is at it's sometimes it feels like it's never going to happen because and there's been a lot of great campaigns, um, like all the big uh, four Australian banks, um, which are really big banks globally, have um, said no to investing in the mine because um, they need investment to build this rail line that goes to the coast where they can export coal on ships through the Great Barrier Reef and, yeah, mm. probably destroy the reef as well even more. Um but they haven't been able to get financing for this rail line, um, be- mainly because of a lot of um, sort of community pressure on the banks and other companies. Uh, uh, some other engineering companies have pulled out of working with Adani. So it's it makes no sense. Um, it, like there's no business case really for working with them because they've got such a poor record. And also coal... Um, as I'm sure you know, like there's a lot of talk about coal being um, stranded assets um, already becoming stranded assets. Places like the US, I guess, are experiencing this mm-hmm. where um, all this money is put into developing something that then will not be able to be sold because there'll be no demand for it. Um, whether or not that happens in the short term is a different question, I guess, but hopefully we don't get to that stage to, to test it out because that the amount of coal it would just blow the global carbon budget. And that's, again, where it's like, okay, Australia, there's a, there's a, there's high unemployment in the north of Queensland and that's why the, both governments are sort of supporting this mine because they think that it's going to bring in jobs and, and whatever. And there's been a lot of, I mean, originally the mine said there's going to be like 10,000 jobs and then they actually were um, in court, they they said that and then they actually went back and said actually it will be more like a 1,000 jobs and so they lied in court. So there's like a, a, a list of other things they've done here which is like it's, it's completely like unethical company like and mm-hmm. just dodgy company that I don't know why the government has been supporting um, 
And it's also just false. Um, like the last election, the Conservative government won and people think it is because of Adani, because a lot of, um, a lot of pressure came from the southeast where we live to try and stop the mine because of climate change and, um, you know, people living up in the, in the rural areas in the, kind of like what happened in, the, I guess, the Rust Belt in the US with Trump. Like they were kind of like, you know, who are you guys from the city telling us what to do? Like we need jobs, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's and, yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues with that. But um, I guess what the government did was they're selling this idea that coal is going to bring like jobs and um, prosperity to, to these communities. But it's just false because, yes, maybe in the short term there will be some jobs in construction, but then most of these mines are going automated, like, and most of the jobs are for, you know, highly trained, um, you know, university graduates, engineers, geologists, um, who will mostly be fly in, fly out. So they'll probably live in Brisbane or other cities and fly in and work and, like, that's not going to support the community and maybe there will be some short-term benefits, but as the Paris Agreement is implemented around the world um, and countries do start to move further and faster away from fossil fuels, like we're going to be left with all of these assets um, and the communities are going to be the first ones to lose out. And I think that's, yeah, totally irresponsible from on the government's behalf because they should be the ones look, having foresight um, and creating jobs that will last and that are healthy for the community, you know, like... It's, there's been a lot of cases in the last five years in, in New South Wales in the coal sort of region of black lung disease coming back, like all these coal miners getting black lung disease and I think the same things happen in the US as well. But um, it's like that's not a healthy job for your family to live in a town next to the coal mine like and people won't want to live there. So, yeah, it's but who knows what will happen. The last thing with the Adani mine was that Siemens, the big sort of engineering tech company, German tech company, um, uh, the C, they had signed a contract to do some um, autom automation stuff for the rail line for Adani um, and then a lot of pressure was put on to them um, in, the la in the last month or so to not um, work with Adani. Um, and a lot of there was pro, there was protests in sixty cities around Germany, like in front of all these Siemens offices, and um, a lot of people were emailing the the, the CEO of Siemens Global. Um, I I sent him a few emails. I think lots of people here did, and there was a lot of pressure. And then he came out the other day. You might have seen in the news, but he'd seen, he'd he basically said he wrote this long statement, and he said, you know. Siemens is doing a lot on emissions reductions. They do a lot in renewables, which is true. But because they've already signed this contract, they're going to decide. They've decided to go ahead with with working with the Dani, which is, yeah, um, pretty devastating. Because we we thought that you know Siemens, they're a pretty progressive company and do do a lot of good stuff. And but you know his argument was like, yeah, we're doing all this stuff, and like the coal would go like some other company would do it if we didn't it's just like come on the time for that like is done we need to we need companies to show leadership as well and um you know tell their shareholders why you know working with this kind of like with a company like adani is is actually bad and 
you know, risky as well. Like there's a lot of risk. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. No, so many things running through my head. Uh, uh, The Adani thing, I feel like parallels the issues that we've had with um, Alberta tar sands up in Canada and the pipelines that they want to do from Canada all the way through the US. And it goes through aquifers, it goes through indigenous lands. And to be honest, the indigenous peoples of uh, Canada and um, the Dakotas have been on the front lines of trying to stop those pipelines. And um, yeah. similarly, our government and not just the Trump administration, but the Obama administration specifically just kicked the can down the road on making a decision on those pipelines, kicked it all the way down the road until he left. And then Trump has, uh, in the past month, another thing that has not made the news here because there's so many other things going on, has cleared the way for Keystone XL to go ahead. And there's already been tons of leaks that they don't seem to cover unless you really hunt through the internet. Uh, So all the things that the indigenous people and the farmers, and like you said, generally we think of farmers and ranchers of of siding with the conservatives, and now they're joining with indigenous peoples and environmentalists because it's ruining their land. And this idea of property rights in the U.S. is so very strong as well. And it just proves Mm. if the government or a very... um, very rich entity like a large corporation can just throw away property rights and have a pipeline go through your ranch whether you like it or not so um, so many things running parallel but one thing i wanted to uh, ask you about what uh because it's going to bring us i think around to blue carbon is this carbon well this um wildlife uh mitigation or moving like you said the adani they were gonna uh they're in in the process of destroying a habitat but they're going to recreate the habitat somewhere else. And that yeah. is something I'm interested in because funnily enough, I work in digital marketing and one of my clients six years ago was in environmental restoration. And I did not understand, like, I, you know, I heard all these words and didn't understand exactly what they're doing. And now I look back and my understanding of what they do is, you know, if the state needs to build a road through the wetlands, the way they get away, the way they can do that and destroy the wetlands is that they pay to restore wetlands elsewhere. But now thinking about it, it's like, well, you know, you're destroying this wetlands, but the geese don't move from that destroyed place to this other one over here. Um, And then also I remember I was doing some graphic work and there was a beaver in this graphic and they specifically said, you need to take that out because we consider them a pest. So that means to me that they're removing or killing the beavers on the land. And then it's like, well, how, how is this really ecologically sustainable? A good ecology would include beavers. And I did my, my other interview I did a couple of weeks ago is actually about reintroducing beavers into the ecosystem. So um, are we having like this sort of, uh, wetland management or uh, flood mitigation, but it's still man-made. I mean, is the, what do you think about that? Is similar with its blue carbon kind of getting in that area as well? Yeah, like there's definitely a lot of parallels. And your question earlier about if blue carbon was kind of something not used in the US, it it is kind of a um, global sort of concept, but it's it's quite new and it's just it's just a new term or um, yeah way of talking about stuff eco- ecology um, that we've known about and been talking about for a long time. So there has been a lot of work. I think can't remember where the US, what state. It's one of the northeast states. Um, there's been a lot of work around yeah coastal wetland management um, around these things called tidal salt marshes, which are kind of where there's like an estuary or a uh, a tidal river um usually there's these things called tidal salt marshes that grow around them and so they actually sequester a lot of carbon and that's one of the type 
uh, ecosystem types that come under the term blue carbon. So okay. um, there, then, then there's a lot of parallels with um, the wetland sort of flood um, stuff that you've just been talking about. Um, and I guess, um, yeah, so I, I've actually worked in um, biodiversity offsets and carbon offset um, organisations here in Australia. And um, so a biodiversity offset, as you were sort of talking, what which is what you were describing, um, is where there's a development um, and I'm not sure what I, I think the regulations in the US are similar to here that say a developer, whether it's a housing development or a tourist or a hotel or whatever it is or a road that whoever develops that road and if they you have to cut down, you know, sort of X um, hectares or acres of, of mangroves or, or, or bushland or forest, um, then they have to plant um, in, Australia, in Victoria, it's supposed to be six times what they, they removed. Um, so they have to elsewhere be uh, returning six times, which I think it, it, it makes sense to make it more because it takes time to regenerate and stuff. So I think that's a, in principle, the policy I, and I think is, is okay and understanding that, you know, population grows and cities grow and so there has to be development and unfortunately that means that um, vegetation does is removed I, I don't think it should be but that's just the reality um, and so having a policy that you know makes that entity or the developer will usually pay the government or pay a, an NGO to go and do the replanting or revegetation elsewhere um, and I think yeah in principle that is good and should work but um from my experience and talking to people that um as, as i'm sure there is in the u.s like there's a lot of dodgy developers out there and um and a lot of non-compliance so um and, and again it's like as you were sort of erring to like yeah if, if you cut down a, a sort of mangroves um a lot of that that carbon and, and um, that's stored in the in the sediment as well is is often lost, and then you say you're replanting mangroves, which are n notoriously difficult to do, which we can talk about later as well. Um, you're expecting that so, like it's it's like this instant thing that it's going to be the same level, but I mean, I mean with terrestrial forests, like um, when you log, you know, an old growth forest of over, over two hundred years old, like there's so much carbon and nutrients and um, just light and biodiversity in that forest that, yeah, you can replant, but, you know, it, it's going to take 200 years to get to the same level. So you're actually, you know, comparing apples and oranges, like it's, it's not the same thing. And so it's, yeah, it's hugely problematic um, offsetting, I think. Um, understanding though, but I guess that it's, it's better to have, that than not having anything at all as many places in the world don't but that yeah it is problematic um having said that there are some great operators and organizations here that do different kinds of biodiversity and carbon offsetting that that can be quite successful and um there is some good work in there uh, done in that space but there are a lot of issues and yeah particularly for the the animals i think your example with the beaver is a is, and similar to your dani um the black-throated finch like just this 
it's a it's a mind-boggling like assumption a human sort of assumption that somehow an animal is going to move or even if we translocate so that we take them in a proper program to this new habitat the habitat's not going to be the same for a long time so what like it's very and translocations um you know are often unsuccessful anyway so it's it's a really problematic area yeah so so explain to us uh blue carbon and a little bit about this uh carbon sequestration process i'm not sure if my audience fully understands uh what that means yeah for sure so blue carbon is as i said it's kind of a new term it's been around for about 10 years but it's not the the actual science and ecology isn't necessarily too different than and it's come from, from earlier things but basically blue carbon is a term that describes the carbon that's captured and stored in coastal ecosystems so that includes predominantly um, but different um, literature and and organizations will sort of include different types of ecosystems but the main three ecosystems are mangrove forests seagrass meadows and tidal salt marshes which are these they kind of look like um, sort of thick Uh, reedy sort of grass type um, ecosystems that grow next to sort of estuaries or um, rivers close to the coast so um, these ecosystems basically through photosynthesis uh, pull carbon uh, co2 out of the atmosphere and also out of the oceans um, and they store it in their biomass so they store it in their above ground biomass which is the for mangroves the trunks and the the stems and the leaves and all that stuff that you actually see um, and then in the below ground biomass as well, which is the roots, um, um, rhizomes and, and the mud and the sediment where they grow. And so with mangroves, um, most of, and actually all three ecosystems, most of the carbon that they, they pull out of the atmosphere um, and is stored in the mud. So that's sequestration. So pulling something out of the atmosphere and putting, um, locking it away um, is what sequestration means. Um, and mangroves can and actually all three ecosystems can do this, but mangroves are, uh, are sort of the most successful and um, able to do this is they do this thing called coastal accretion. So because they're constantly pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, the, the mud and sediment under them is actually uh, rising. So they actually can build land essentially. So they're pretty amazing sort of ecosystems um, and often when when mangroves are healthy and you know there's diff, there's there's a lot there's about 70 different mangrove species worldwide which is actually quite um, not a large number if you look at different um, genuses of, of plant species it's quite small um, and in a lot of parts of the world usually there's a between sort of one and six species in a in a one in one area um, but if there is a healthy mangrove forest, um, uh, often that 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 carbon that's in the mud w- can last there for thousands of years, so millennia timescales, um, which is why they're really important for um, address or not addressing climate change. But in terms of if if the international community can stay within our carbon budget, protecting these ecosystems is really important because. Um, when you cut them down or degrade them, a lot of that carbon then is released back into the ocean and atmosphere through um, the microbes decomposing um, the the actual carbon 
um, in the mud and the, the, the sediment and that gets, gets released. Um, and that's kind of what we call in the sort of in academia is blue carbon emissions. So they're okay. um, all, all as, as some of your listeners probably know, if you've got ecology background or biology, like all ecosystems are constantly having fluxes of uh, CO carbon going in and out. So out, in and out of trees, in and out of mangroves, in and out of seagrasses. Um, but when you degrade them, um, they're not able to photosynthesize, so it's all going out. Um, and so protecting these ecosystems in a, in a climate-changing world is, is incredibly important. So, you know, if we're doing all this work to reduce emissions from electricity or vehicles or whatever else or agriculture, but then we go and, you know, continue to degrade and, and remove mangroves and seagrasses, then um, there's, there's so much carbon stored there globally um, that we'd be in real strife so um but unfortunately the the sort of trends um so in my research i looked at um sort of global trends in blue carbon ecosystems and in the last since the 1980s mangroves just for one example have um basically halved in their area cover and sort of and mainly because of um land clearing for coastal development um road infrastructure um, hotel developments and resorts, um, aquaculture, so shrimp farming in a lot in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, where there's a the biggest concentration of mangrove forests in the world, um, has been some of the the sort of main or um, drivers of uh, damage to mangroves. For seagrasses, it's um, often um, sort of agriculture where they will drain the swamp, um, the swamplands. No. No sort of pun intended around Trump. I know, there, but, the swamp. Um, I couldn't help but think of that as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like globally, it's it's not looking good for these coastal ecosystems, and you know a lot of the global population lives within a couple of kilometers or miles of the coast, and um, we're heavily reliant on coastal resources. Um, and, and particularly in a lot of places in, in the Pacific where I did research, you know, a lot of communities, um, you know, are fishing communities and so they depend on those resources um, and they depend on the biodiversity that, that is possible because of mangroves and seagrasses and salt marshes providing that habitat and for fish species and turtles and, and the range of biodiversity in birds as well. Um, and so that that the, those ecosystem dynamics and biodiversity are really critical to to obviously just in their own right, but also for those communities that are dependent on those resources. And if we cut them down, um, then there's that biodiversity is going to be lost as it as it is globally. Um, I guess the good thing about this sort of push for protecting blue carbon over the last ten years um, is that people are becoming more aware of the importance of mangroves. I mean, just as an example, when I was in Fiji, talking to um, communities and organisations as well, who work in conservation and um, have been, you know, Fijians and stuff, um, they were telling me about how a lot of people have always just hated mangroves. They, they, they smell bad. Um, they're ugly. They block the view of the, the, the beach so you can't see um, where if, if you've got family or part of your community are fishing, it's, it's the mangroves block the way. Um, and so in a lot of places around the world, because of that, 
um, they've been degraded and, and removed because they're undesirable. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of now, you know, there's a lot more awareness around conservation, I guess, um, and particularly in places like the Pacific um, that, yeah, people are really starting to understand that, you know, when you cut down a mangrove forest, um, there's a whole range of cascading impacts that will happen into that area from, you know, coastal erosion, you know, um, vulnerability to hazards like storms and cyclones that, that they protect coastlines from and communities and then all the biodiversity impacts as well. So, um, yeah, which then impact people's food security and, and sort of so on and so forth. So, yeah, there is more awareness because of this sort of push for protecting blue carbon, but it's mostly been in academia and, and research and um, it's yet to really result in any sort of tangible um, large-scale conservation um, or, and protection outcomes. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where that's at. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so in the article that I read by you, and I'll link to that article in the notes for this um, episode as well, uh, my understanding, is, the premise of the, the article that you wrote is that the Australian administration is using carb- blue carbon offsetting as proof that they are doing something uh, for climate change. But uh, it sounds like you don't necessarily agree with that. Is that correct? Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'd been working in the Pacific before I started my master's and um, I'd, when I, I was sort of, uh, I remember flying over the islands and just think, I was trying to figure out, I'd actually just come from the US and I was working in um, conservation in Yosemite National Park and mm. doing stuff on giant sequoias um, and being out there was pretty inspiring. And when I was, I was coming back to do some work in the, in the Pacific um, before I went back to Australia, um, and I was like thinking of like what's some kind of um, what's an area that sort of brings together all the things I'm interested in conservation, climate change, or mitigating climate change, um, but also helping communities adapt to the impacts of climate. And and I was like, I remember just thinking like mangroves that like it's these ecosystems, you know, they they pull that carbon out of the atmosphere, so alleviate uh, climate change. Um, they provide protection from storms and cyclones and sea level rise as well, um, and also really important for concept for biodiversity and, and sustainable development. So that's kind of why I ended up doing this research in blue carbon. But I was always kind of a bit sceptical of the whole offsetting thing. And just to sort of go back on talking about like how blue carbon offsetting would work is that um, basically a polluter a country or a government or an individual um, would put money or purchase offsets or, or credits to offset their their emissions from, you know, industry or vehicles or, or whole national economies emissions by investing that money into protecting or restoring um, mangroves or seagrasses. So that's kind of how it would work. So um, how other carbon markets work is that there, there can be sort of a central body where, um, credit uh, offsets can and credits can be traded um, and that that money from the sale of, of credits between polluters and people that are doing uh, sort of reducing emissions in their activities um, will then go to yeah you know setting up a marine protected area or or, or a national park to protect those those uh, those ecosystems so that's kind of how it would work but um, 
they're they're like offsetting is is important in the in the sort of the global response to climate change. Like there there is a place for offsets, and and we do need to sequester a lot of carbon. I don't know if you've read Project Drawdown. I've heard um, of it. I haven't read it. Yeah. Um, it's a great book. It's basically like a hundred solutions to climate change and mm-hmm. um, and really easy to read. So I'd suggest you sharing it actually with your yeah. listeners because it, it's Hawk- available. Is that Paul Hawkins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Hawkins. Mm-hmm. And his, all the solutions and the everything in the book is available just free online as well so you can look mm-hmm. at it. But um, in that book, um, you know, he he talks about, Oh, now I've lost the my train of thought while I was talking about Project Drawdown. But I guess, yeah, the, the main thing is that, um, yeah, offsets play, will play a role in responding to climate change, but they're by no means a, a, a solution they're, um, in, in themselves. They will play a minor part, um, but we need all these, these other sort of structural changes to, to move away from fossil fuels is, is the key one. And um, the Australian government um, has continued to, um, as I've discussed, you know, support new coal mines and um, our emissions keep going up. But we've, we've used this new concept of blue carbon um, as a way to sort of tell the rest of the world that we, we, we are doing something. Um, and it, it, it's a bit more complicated than that. Like a lot of our public agencies and I know people who work in the, the federal government, like environment department, and there's a lot of great people that, Similarly to the Trump administration, like there's a lot of great people who work in government and, and are trying to do the best that they can with the, the, the situation that they find themselves in because of the politics. So I think, um, yeah, the Australian government about th- two or three years ago announced that they were going to invest like $6 million, which is, I mean, it's, it's nothing really. But mm-hmm. in the Pacific, that's still a lot of money. Um, in research and development around blue carbon to try and set, um, yeah, get it to a, eventually a place where there can be sort of, yeah, saleable carbon credits for protecting mangroves and seagrasses. Um, but they, it, it's been clear that they've only really been doing that because they're not doing anything else and that, um, or they're doing that um, and, and then talking about it as if it's their, like one of their central climate policies, which is just ludicrous when, you know, we're subsidising fossil fuels mm-hmm. like billions of dollars a year just in Australia alone um, and then we're, we're going and saying we're going to invest $6 million in blue carbon research as like a central part of our climate change response. Um, so for, for me, like that was kind of happening as I was starting my project and I was always kind of like, oh, do I want to do research on this because I can see that there's issues. But I was like, I, I, there's still a lot, of, um, in, there's a lot of benefit and it's important that we talk about these ecosystems and that we do protect them. And as I've spoken about earlier, like there's so many benefits, biodiversity, um, coastal protection, um, carbon sequestration and protecting them from emitting these blue carbon emissions is really fundamental. But we can't just do that and not do anything else. Um, right. And that's what our governments continue to do. So at, at, at the three COPs in the last three years, they've used blue carbon and referenced blue carbon in the minister's main speeches, our prime minister's um, um, sort of, um, yeah, so they keep talking about it at the election. I, I was at a local minister's um, sort of, 
panel, like with his opponents who are running for that particular electorate. Um, and he mentioned blue carbon, like just as like, that's what we're doing. That's what Australia is committed to climate change mitigation. And we're doing this on blue carbon research and stuff. And um, so I guess, yeah, what, um, yeah, it's been clear to me that, um, yeah, we've kind of been using that and some other things as a, as a bit of a smokescreen internationally for our um, inaction and, and blocking. At, at COP, we were one of the blockers like in negotiations, which I, I'm not sure how the US was in this last one, but I know they have in the past as well, but just actively preventing um, sort of um, co collaboration and, and joint sort of measures and, and commitments um, and really just kind of washing down the whole Paris Agreement and and our collective response. Like the Paris Agreement has limitations, but it's a pretty phenomenal sort of effort that the, commu the international communities come together and got commitments for 1.5 degrees around climate change and all the research and, and stuff is out there on and, and the knowledge and how to do it. It's obviously the challenge is implementing all those things globally, but then to have countries like Australia and the US like actively blocking that and mm -hmm. for fossil fuel interests and just thinking, I don't know if you followed COP much, but I just heard from someone, you know, like some of the sponsors are like fossil fuel companies and, the, the oil companies like Shell and Chevron and the rest of them are all there, like they're in the room. So it's like how are we going to, um, you know, make plans to decarbonise when the biggest polluters and the causes of the problem are in the same room? Like it's it doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I get, yeah, so... Yeah. It's, it's a shame. I think this is why it's important that we all take the time to educate ourselves, because as you've mentioned, you know, um, main, uh, preserving these habitats are incredibly important for, for just preserving the ecology and the benefits that it provides the environment that we didn't even know about when it comes to carbon sequestration. But it is all too easy for the powers to be to use that as like, oh, look, we're doing something, check, you know, and I think we've all experienced this locally, nationally, and internationally on a variety of issues when the people in power are not listening to the people, they'll do something, they'll basically give lip service. And it sounds like that mm. this is happening. And um, in my research, uh, looking at the article you sent me, but even looking back at that client I had, it raised an interesting, um, another way that this um, using carbon as a commodity, how this is creating loopholes for double counting, uh, which I thought yeah. was crazy can you talk about that i didn't even understand yeah. what i read but <laughs> yeah oh god yeah like when i learned about i'm um, double counting in carbon sort of offsetting and stuff it's, it's just like yeah it's a bit mind-blowing but with blue carbon this is the issue around australia even investing in the pacific I'd, I'd just first likely like to say again like um how australia has been using the blue carbon thing with the pacific is just it's again just a sign of, of total disrespect and um, essentially quite colonial, neo-colonial and, and racist sort of views of our Pacific neighbours. Um, you know, the last three COPs, the, the, the Pacific COP, which was COP uh, 21 uh, in 2017, was presided by Fiji and um, 
since like year, a few years before that and then over the last couple of years, the Pacific have been the leaders in COP and, and the international response. You know, um, the president of Tuvalu and Kiribati, who are the, you know, the most vulnerable countries in the world to climate change, um, Fiji and, and other countries from the Pacific have been pushing, like they pushed for 1.5 degrees and they achieved that and they've been huge leaders and, um, yeah, just... I think it's important that we acknowledge the, the incredible work um, the Pacific communities have been doing. And one group, 350.org, have a subsidiary in the Pacific called 350 Pacific. And um, the Pacific Climate Warriors, you might have seen, they do a lot of a- uh, activism work around COPs and um, we're good friends with that. So I know quite a few of the, the warriors and um, they're great people for, for your listeners to look up there. They do amazing work. and. Um, yeah, I think how Australia treats the Pacific is very paternalistic and, and disrespectful. And the blue carbon thing is just like, it's like we're using this as like, oh, this this almost like carrot and stick thing with, you know, China's influence in the Pacific is rising, as you've seen, probably seen in the news. Um, and then now Australia have been sort of military leaders are trying to tell us the government that we need to, counter China and the US as well trying to counter China in the Pacific and then and then that that all sort of interplays with this climate stuff where you know Australia is then using oh where it will invest in the Pacific on blue carbon um but it, but actually the reasons why we're doing it are probably more because we're worried about China and their influence and we don't actually care about you um and yeah it's it's pretty depressing and and just in like embarrassing and and you know I've got a lot of friends in the Pacific, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people here who are trying to get that change, but it's it's pretty sad. So I, back to your question about the double counting. So essentially, the the this hasn't happened, but it was talked about at COP. Is like what happens when countries are purchasing carbon credits in another country? So there's a lot of this happening in the Amazon and in Brazil where. European countries, so in the EU, countries like Denmark and Norway, have, have been purchased, have been investing in Red Plus, so reducing emissions from deforestation, um, which is kind of this big carbon offsetting scheme for terrestrial land like forests. Um, they've been setting up these systems and investing in trying to generate carbon credits. Um, and so they're kind of counting that as their emissions reductions or part of their approach to climate, mm-hmm. responding to climate change. But then um, Brazil and Bolsonaro, who's, <laughs> God, yeah, uh, we don't, well, let's not talk about him, but I mean, he, he's actually made a good point. It's like, well, this is actually Brazil's, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with sovereign like how the world operates in terms of borders and stuff but Mm -hmm. you know it is brazil's land and then it is this kind of it's like this progressive uh colonialism as well where it's like oh these ngos come in and take it away from indigenous people in in Mm -hmm. in lots of examples in south america which is hugely problematic and then bolsonaro made a good point it's like actually that like it's you guys can't count those as your commitments, even though he doesn't. He probably doesn't believe in climate change anyway, and he is also blocking in COP. But um, so it raises questions for blue carbon. It's like, well, is Australia trying to, which it seems like it is, to set up um, these systems that it can benefit from carbon credits that will be really cheap in Fiji, um, rather than 
buying more expensive credits locally um, and then we count those towards our emission reductions. It's, but then it's Fiji's resources um, for the Pacific's mangroves. Um, so surely if they're doing their ass- assessments of their carbon systems, like how are they even practically going to not count that little bit of mangrove forest? Or it's, it's, I think it practically it's highly problematic, but also ethically and, and just like, again, it doesn't help the cause like it we need to reduce emissions we need to sequester carbon and so double counting is just totally counterproductive because it it also makes it uh, i can see how a, a future government can you know say that they're doing all this stuff and you know they they are reducing emissions and then they're meeting the rest by purchasing carbon credits by offsetting but those offsets are in some other country that you know those systems are incredibly or a large part of their own emissions reductions or sequestration targets. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. And, I mean, it is being talked about at COP and in the UN and stuff. So hopefully that there can be systems that are set up that it doesn't happen. Um, but, it, yeah, it's, it's mm. challenging. Well, I think setting up our environment as commodities on a capitalist system just makes it rife for abuse in a multiple ways as you mentioned uh double counting uh carbon sequestration for the country that it's in but then also this other country um one of the in some of my research i found also wasting of taxpayers money in our country because uh the state do department of transportation will have paid for this wetland um, restoration because they had a road, but then also the federal government paid for it, but it was actually the same project. So a project that was supposed to be a million dollars, that company made 2 million off of it and had to go to court and still managed to argue it because they'd found the loophole that made that accessible. And that that's really bad because if that sort of stuff gets out, that turns people against any sort of, um, let's try and maintain or restore any of our natural habitats. And it's just, it's just rife for, you know, people taking advantage, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and there's too many yeah. people out there willing to do that. But another thing yeah. that you were um, that you were um, talking about that I'm very interested in is this style of carbon offsetting and blue carbon and the terrestrial carbon. Does this disproportionately affect indigenous people? And I know you um, worked in Fiji and I've read about it. We mentioned in um, Brazil where maybe they would pay yeah. a tribe for their indigenous land and say, we're going to use like an NGO would come in yeah. and they, the tribe gets a big flush of cash, but then they're totally yeah. taken off of their land. So yeah. the forest is maintained, but it's fenced off and it completely destroys the indigenous people and their ability yeah. to fish and, uh, and grow and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Is that happening from what you yeah. see? Um, because blue carbon is kind of or car, blue carbon offsetting is, or the idea around that has co- kind of come after the, a lot of terrestrial work and a lot of mm-hmm. um, hard lessons learnt, I guess, at an international level around what's happened with Red Plus in South America and with um, in a lot of places in the Amazon and, and elsewhere as well and in Africa as well, um, is that, yeah, we do have that experience and understanding of the problems and risks. And so in the literature, at least in, in research, um, there's a lot of great um, work being done around, you know, that we need to um, co-produce um, and sort of solutions to, to conserving these ecosystems with local communities and that 
local communities and traditional knowledge has to be integrated and part of any sort of implementation process um, and that people on the ground who are sort of directly linked and connected to these ecosystems yeah, have to be central in, in any, any sort of scheme or anything that's set up. So there's a lot of good stuff in research around that and in sort of the, the, the academic space. But, um, yeah, it's yet to sort of, yeah, we're yet to really, there's only a few examples of blue carbon projects that are actually generating um, offsets and through the voluntary market, which is mm. not through a sort of government regulated system. It's kind of like an NGO sells their carbon offsets just to anyone so individuals can buy them and stuff and that's in kenya um and it's a very small project it's about 100 hectares or something so it's very minimal and it's really successful so far but that's kind of the only one that's set up and there's there's there is progress elsewhere but it it's a bit different than terrestrial because a lot of the mangrove stocks are in the the intertidal zone where um often like, you know, practically there's usually, there's not usually people directly living there. Mm-hmm. They might be living right next to it. Um, and then land rights in a lot of countries are uh, sort of variable in that intertidal zone. Like in the Pacific and in Fiji, for instance, you know, there is traditional Indigenous land rights over land and also over the, se- the marine area. Mm-hmm. Um, but the marine area, it's kind of a lot... There's sort of government um, uh, ways around the indigenous land rights, and also, um, yeah, it's a it's a lot more difficult to to monitor and, and police. So there are issues around, um, yeah, I mean, tourist operators and sort of coming in, and uh, it's more around the degradation and clearing of those ecosystems without um, indigenous or local communities sort of knowledge of understanding of what's happening or um and because there hasn't really been any big projects set up um there's that hasn't really surfaced but just one example um when i was doing interview i was interviewing um sort of um specialists in conservation and um in fiji and and what someone i spoke to was telling me an example of a of a carbon project that was kind of trying to be set up in papua new guinea i think or the solomon islands um and basically what happened was that this community was, you know, their, their forest um, was really healthy and they were living, like, very sustainably And because traditional practices are very sustainable as, as they would be in, the, in North America as well and South America and, and in Australia with our Aboriginal people as well um, are very ecologically sustainable, but it's when those Western sort of concepts come in that things change and that that knowledge is lost and and then you see environmental impacts. But this example, so basically this NGO or um, sort of carbon offset um, developer came in and told the community, you know, like, this is what we want to do. We want to protect your forest from logging or clearing or whatever. Okay, cool. Um, you know, this, your community is going to get these benefits and this money, these returns. Um, and so they basically were involving the community and it seemed like a good project. But then what happened was that the, this NGO was went away and, you know, they were probably trying to set it up and probably trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But what happened was that after a couple of years, you know, this community was like, 
waiting for the benefits and nothing was coming because it takes a long time to set this stuff up and, you know, there's a lot of regulation things around setting, you know, financial systems that go along with these offsetting schemes um, and it takes years. And so this community hadn't received anything and apparently they started to, um, yeah, they they were basically like, well, actually our forests are worth money so we can get money for them so they started they went and engaged logging companies and logging companies came in and logged the forest because they could see that they could actually make money but before the ngo came in they didn't even look at the forest in that way they didn't have that sort of western concept of you know monetizing everything or capitalist concept i should say um and so they they would never have done that but it was only when they realised because they'd been given this idea that they could make money off the resource that they actually that it ended up having this, you know, much worse environmental impact. And so that was like a classic example of like, uh, you know, like we need to think, especially like that Western approach to conservation stuff, like you, ha- you have to be extremely careful. And in a lot of cases, it's probably best if we just stay out and, you know, empower locals to to take to do the, that that work in their own way, and and to capture sort of keep that traditional ecological knowledge and, and approaches to land management that were in place before colonization and stuff. So, yeah, that and that sort of example for me was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's where blue carbon would potentially become highly problematic as well, and. My sort of motivation for doing the project was, you know, it's likely that people will try and set up blue carbon projects. So I wanted to try and offer a perspective that, you know, put that the local people, where whoever they are, they don't have to be Indigenous. It can be anyone who's locally sort of there and um, sort of, um, you know, dependent on that, that particular resource um, for their livelihoods or or they're just there being the stewards or custodians of that ecosystem, that they are central in any approach and that their voices are heard um, and they're, they're part of the process, not just at the start but throughout and then on, in this sort of ongoing management. And so that was kind of my motivation, you know, like this, this stuff's probably going to happen. So how can we, um, yeah, provide a, a way for local people to be heard and, and central in sort of conservation uh, implementation yeah that's certainly a noble cause and i i hope that um you you stay on the forefront of making sure that this new sort of blue carbon landscape can be as beneficial as possible to everyone who's around and beneficial not meaning monetarily beneficial because i think that's our short-sightedness as yeah. well is that everything comes down to the dollar and that's yeah exactly. that short that short term uh, you know, colonial way of thinking, like you said, we need to like unprogram that. And that is such a huge, scary task that I don't know how it's going to happen. But when you have people like you who've recognized that and are trying to, you know, move forward with a different way, creating different ways of doing this so that the people benefit in the long term, that everyone benefits. Yeah, for sure. Can I just add one more thing? Like another, an an example of answering your question in a different way from, from Australia, actually, um, where it's actually a bit more positive where like Aboriginal people uh, are continued, continued to be sort of um, disenfranchised in Australia and our policies are 
um, yeah, yeah, it's it's not a good situation in Australia for a lot of Indigenous communities. Um, but one thing that has happened over the last ten years is, and actually since so since that progressive government came in around two thousand nine, set up all these climate or two thousand seven, but kind of in a few years set up a lot of climate policies. One of their policies was this land based approach, so a sort of carbon market sort of uh, approach to land management. So planting trees, um, other conservation sort of approaches. And one of them is this thing called savanna burning, which in the basically the whole top third of Australia has a type of savanna. It's a bit different. It looks a bit different to the savanna you be familiar with in Africa. But um, so it's kind of sparse vegetation, but with smaller trees. And um, it's, it's a kind of a quite rough sort of landscape, but it is beautiful and in in a in a cool way but um basically fire is part of the natural ecology there all over australia as it is in a lot of places in the u.s as well um but since colonization you know fire regimes have changed um and we've prevented those natural small small low intensity fires from burning the ecology which you know promotes regrowth and regeneration and also um yeah, and also puts carbon back into the soil, um, and so and then removes fuel so that major fires like the fires we're seeing now don't don't occur as often. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this approach, savanna burning, was basically where they invested money into into indigenous ranger programs, and um, Aboriginal rangers basically have been doing this savanna burning. So it's kind of like back burning or controlled burns or prescribed burns different terminology in the u.s as well but mm-hmm. um where in the um in the fall um or autumn and um spring as well they um when it's so it's not too wet and it's not too dry or high fire risk they'll go and do these these burning like low intensity burns across the landscape in and they use this thing called pat it's like a mosaic um so they'll burn little bits um in different areas on a rotating annual basis so that everything does get burnt um, to a, like, so moderately. And what it's done is it's actually generating carbon credits. The two things, how they sort of measure it is that it's putting carbon back in the soil, but it's also what it's doing is preventing these mega fires that when they happen, all of this carbon is released back into the atmosphere. And so it's been really successful um, um, across the top end of Australia and now with these fires here in the southeast, people are talking about why aren't we using this kind of mosaic burning and um, down here as well and using that Aboriginal Indigenous knowledge um, and, yeah, and and so but the sort of co-benefits to this savannah burning and Aboriginal ranger programs are that there's been a lot of investment in remote Indigenous communities, um, so sustainable mm-hmm. um employment that isn't based on working in a coal mine or Mm -hmm. some other extractive industry Um, and it's also um, you know putting they they have this terminology like putting people back on country because that's how aboriginal talk about it's they it's their country so getting back onto country where they might because of colonization they you know that they might have been just not living out in the bush and engaging with their their traditional knowledge, um, and these this savanna burning program or ranger programs has done has been able to 
put young people back in employment, getting them outside, getting them involved in conservation. And it has been really successful. Um, um, and I think there's a lot of benefits to that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting thing to look into. And I think it's an example of where carbon offsetting and land management sequestration projects can really have um, be successful in terms of the environmental um, benefits but also the social and economic benefits to empowering local people. And so from that, 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 that example here in Australia, I think the Pacific and blue carbon, there's opportunities to learn from that and I think there are opportunities to do that in a, in a sustainable way but again, as, as I mentioned earlier, that we need all that, that work. That's really important. Actually, why I mentioned Project Drawdown was that a lot of the, um, the IPCC and the Paris Agreement commitments depend on like the whole world sequestering a lot of carbon, so drawing down a lot of carbon from the atmosphere in the second half of the century. So we need to reduce emissions to zero and net zero, but we also need to take a lot of carbon out the atmosphere so we can get back to safe levels and that's what project drawdown is really about all these different solutions to re withdrawing co2 from the atmosphere in a in a range of different ways um and so blue carbon and carbon offsetting is going to be really important in doing that um and it i mean carbon offsetting you it is a capitalist sort of approach and maybe not the right one but it, but it is something and um, i think it can be done in a way that that is beneficial and and um yeah so well that i'm definitely going to look up savannah burning and i'll be putting links to all that sort of information because it's great to hear those success stories as something that hopefully we can emulate throughout the world and yeah. all the all the people in it so that's fantastic yeah so ollie just one last question for you what advice would you give someone who's just now waking up to the climate crisis yeah like i i think it's I mean, for me, having been kind of involved in it for and working and volunteering and active in the space for about six, six, seven years now, um, it's still emotional for me. Like it's devastating seeing these fires happen now, and um, but it, it's yeah. So it and it can be really emotional, particularly when you first sort of realise the real implications for our life as as people and and as humanity and and life on Earth. So I think. First of all, just um, try and talk about it. Um, find someone that you can talk about it with who also maybe understands the issue or knows a bit about it. If you don't have anyone that you know, find a Facebook group and mm -hmm. or, or find a local, actually even better, find a local organisation that does something, whether it's, and, and there, there's a whole range of ways you can get involved. Like there's groups that do conservation stuff that you can get involved in if you want that sort of practical hands-on there's also sort of more activist community groups that there will be other people that you can talk about how you're feeling because I think that's really important and something that's not talked about, that emotional side of, you know, the world is, it's, you know, apocalyptic movies, everyone thinks, you know, that's just so far-fetched, but that's what we're facing if we don't, um, you know, do everything that we already know we can and, and implement all those solutions. So um, I think, and that that's hard to to sort of stomach but so I think finding someone to talk to about it I think is really important um, but the something I've noticed the best way for my own mental health in in terms of climate grief which is a whole sort of new psychological field around you know coming to terms with the climate crisis 
is um, actually taking action is the is the thing that makes you feel the best. Um, we, I went to climate protest last week and I hadn't been to one in a while. And I mean, it, you know, you can have different views about protesting and how effective it is, but just going there and being with thousands of people and knowing that there's other people out there, I think is really powerful. And, and I was feeling good after it, whether or not it's going to change Australia's climate policy is a different question. But I think whenever I've taken action, um, I felt good about it afterwards. And I think that is a way to, to deal with that sort of emotional side of things. So talking about it, joining a local group, there's so many different types of organizations wherever you are now. Like, so just jump on Facebook, search around climate change volunteering and volunteering is a great way to take action in different ways. I think the organization I used to work with um, is called Climate for Change. So we basically use the Tupperware party model. Um, but -hmm. instead of selling plastic in people's homes, we have conversations about climate change. So we'd go to people's homes usually so through someone you know so it's not like random door knocking or anything um and you have your friends or something whoever's hosting and invites their friends over you have some dinner watch a short video about climate change that explains the science and sort of the impacts and also the solutions and then just have a conversation about it it's a really effective model and it's been yeah wonderful to be part of um but Um, we sort of, at Climate for Change anyway, we're sort of focused on trying to get people to take what we call sort of citizen-based actions that are really putting pressure on those levers of power that are really stopping climate change action or responding to the issue. So, you know, contacting, I don't know how it works in the US, but I assume there is a possibility to, you know, contact your local congressman or or parliamentarian or or senator or even if it's local sort of um, jurisdiction governments or state your state government um, contact them and and ask them you know like what are you going to do like what or or if they've done something that you're not happy with let them know Um, you know a lot of I don't know how it is in the US but a lot of um, ministers and and politicians here in Australia um, they don't receive many letters or email. Like some receive a lot, but often they don't receive many letters or like handwritten ones or calls or people actually visiting them. Um, And that's what they're there for. So I really encourage people trying to get involved in, yeah, putting pressure on your local member. And it is a way to, um, yeah, let them know that you actually care about this issue and you want change. And I think with you know it's interesting times in the u.s now with the democratic primaries and you know the impeachment thing and trump the next election so but i think there's never a better time than before an election to i don't know join do some volunteering go do door knocking i don't know just try and talk to people put pressure on on governments tell them that you know regardless if you're a republican you're conservative you're a liberal whatever Mm -hmm. Climate change doesn't care about politics and I think we need to come together and the more people we talk about it, um, the more we can move past that sort of cognitive dissonance around, um, yeah, there's this thing, a classic thing in Australia, I don't know if this global statistics, but there's this thing where in Australia, the majority of Australians believe climate change is real and then they think the government should be doing more, mm-hmm. but 50% of that that large i think it's like 75 percent now 50 percent of them think that the rest the other 50 percent of the population don't even believe in climate change so they don't actually talk about it because you're constantly worried that you know 
probably someone sitting next to you is, doesn't believe in it and mm-hmm. is going to berate you for, you know, believing in this climate conspiracy or something. So people don't talk about it. So, at, um, yeah, the work at Climate for Change, we're trying to promote people to talk about it and I think that's where it's really important to break down those barriers between, um, yeah, or that stigma around talking about it because I think it's really important to talk about it. So, yeah, I have a go at writing a letter to a to a congressman, and it would be awesome to hear how that goes. I don't know if there are organisations that support doing that. You know, you can do other things like petitions and go to a protest, join the climate student strikes. They've been massive, or other groups, um, and yeah, try something. Like there is lots of different ways you can take action. Um, but I think, and and that can be a bit overwhelming. But just try, give a try one, join a group, give it a go. If it's not for you, that's okay. You, there's there's other things out there. But I think we need to be talking about it. Um, we need to be supporting each other and um, and yeah, bringing it out in the open and talking about the the emotional toll of of this issue as well. Um, and yeah, share and, and talk about and share those stories that you do hear that are positive and, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great advice, Ollie. I appreciate it. I know, um, I think it's good advice to, to get more involved, especially as you mentioned in the US, we're in an election year and, um, and these things very much matter. And I agree with what you're saying. I mean, climate change to me, I don't understand why it is a partisan issue. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. It is a world issue. It shouldn't be one country or one party or anything like that. So, you know, I would hope in, in the best of circumstances that this is something that could actually rally the entire world's population to do something good and prove that humans are this smart species that we like to believe we are. and do something about it exactly and mm -hmm. sorry can i just one one thing that that made me think of about yeah the an example of where and really relevant to australia and the us is is the uk where um i don't know if you've followed but you know they've been in political turmoil with brexit Mm -hmm. for years now for the last three or four years but the whole time through all of that you know they've had a bunch of prime ministers as well and just total government breakdown basically Mm -hmm. um is that they've kept a really they've improved their climate policy over that time and boris johnson whatever you think of him you know one of his election commitments was net zero emissions by 2050 now whether or not you know he is the person that's going to be able to actually achieve that or that they will but the uk have done a lot of good stuff on climate and you know, phasing out fossil fuels, investing in renewables. And, you know, they're a small, they're a small geographic country, which makes them different to the US and Australia, but they've got a big population and they're influential. Um, and their conservatives have very similar views to our conservatives, but they've still managed climate change and climate policy has, has kind of stayed out of politics. And hopefully that stays a bit. I think it's, it's heartening for us in in Australia and the US when you see that because it can be non like it can be nonpartisan and um, and it should be and I think that's a it's a really relevant example to to sort of keep in mind um, and so mm-hmm. if you yeah if you're worried about talking to you know your Republican uncle about climate change do it anyway because we need everyone on board and um, yeah I think it's really important that we're all talking about it yeah. 
Well, I appreciate your time, Ollie. I know you're about to kick off your day in, um, in Melbourne and everyone, I'll just express our thoughts. I hate, I'm not gonna say thoughts and prayers. I really hate that phrase, but you know, there's a lot of energy and, um, just sympathy going towards Australia. Um, it's been going on for months, but it really hit our news over the holiday period and people are heartbroken and, if any good comes of it, I hope it's the wake up call that people need to understand that this is, this is real and this is the results of climate change. You know, it's not a, yeah. it's not a meteor hitting us and everything goes away. It is going to be longer fire seasons, uh, you know, stronger fires uh, where I live, our hurricane season is expanding and the hurricanes are stronger and stronger and people somehow compartmentalize that and say, it's not climate change when it's very clear yeah. that it is, and the Australian wildfires in particular were, were they not um, outlined in the IPCC report like two or three years ago? They basically said, this is what's going to happen and it's happening. Yeah. So, um, you know, let's all, like you said, speak to one another, rally a community together and take action to make a change. So yeah. I appreciate it, Ollie. Thanks so much, Fiona. Okay. Thank you so much. Take we'll be care. in touch. You too. See ya. Okay. Bye. bye.